0: Simple Beep, Episode 28, Software for Kids. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we're going to talk about a whole host of software that is often pointed to as one of the Mac's strengths. I think that, especially back in the uh, Mac versus PC wars days, people would say, oh, well, what, what's a Mac good for? It's good for education and creatives and some people might still say that today. Um and so there was a lot of really great software uh that was targeted at kids in the classic Mac era and fortunately for us we were kids at the time. <laughs> so this might be the part of the show where the people who are older than us turn off and say, "Oh, you you young ones, you don't know how good you have it." And uh the people who are younger than us might uh might learn a few things about where maybe some famous franchises that they knew from later on have uh, have come from. So before we dive into, like I said, a whole host of different software products, uh, a little bit of follow-up. So first one is uh, not episode-related follow-up, but our t-shirt sale has concluded, and we wanted to thank everyone who Bought a shirt. And if you're listening to this episode around the time of its release, you should also be getting your shirt in the mail. I know I've been checking my delivery widget and uh, I think we're down to two days.
1: Yeah, same.
0: uh, As we record this. So um, it'll be there soon. A couple other pieces of follow up that are episode related. Our last episode, we talked about the history of Apple advertising and asked people to send in if they had any particular. Uh, favorite ads that we didn't mention. And listener Yannick sent in an ad that uh, he didn't describe it this way. But if you look at it on YouTube, we mentioned in our episode that there was a Japanese parallel to the I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads. And there was also apparently an entire Japanese switcher campaign and that this is one of his favorite switcher ads. And if you read the YouTube comments, which is always a dangerous thing, (laughs) um, people will say that this one is apparently pointed out as the Japanese Ellen Feiss. A little bit more upbeat, but maybe some of the same quirkiness that got Ellen Feiss into... Well, she didn't get into trouble, but she gained some notoriety. (laughs) One other that was interesting uh, was not from an ad per se, but from one of those keynote videos, the Simplicity Shootout, which was presented at the original iMac unveiling, where a kid and his dog beat a well-educated man in setting up an iMac versus a beige PC. And it turns out that uh, the Simplicity Shootout guy has made himself known. And Phil sent in this link to us And this was a public Facebook post that the guy put up in just October of this year. And he says, The new Steve Jobs movie has reminded me about the dark secret I've been hiding for nearly 20 years. (laughs) And it's the fact that he was the guy in the Simplicity Shootout video who struggled over setting up that HP pavilion.
1: And now on to the main topic of this episode, the Software for Kids
0: Which is mentioned in the outline here as, that's edutainment.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's me having a little fun in the Google Doc. Uh, We're going to break down this episode mostly by three major software companies who produced software for the Mac and other platforms uh, during the late 80s and early to mid 90s.
0: As we were putting this together... It wasn't the companies that sprung to mind immediately, but as we started listing titles that were some of the classic uh, kid-oriented software of this time and started putting them together in a list, we realized that there were basically three major publishers that we needed to cover, and it seemed like a good way to group them together.
1: And as you'll see by the end, uh, maybe they have more in common with each other than you would expect at the outset. But for now, on to the first one, a company called MEC, M-E-C-C, which stands for the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, or later in its uh, life, the Minnesota Educational Computing Corporation.
0: And this was one of the ones I definitely remembered. I can envision their logo plastered across a uh, five and a quarter inch floppy drive. It was that slanty lowercase M-E-C-C with the lines coming at it, like it was zooming across the, all across the label.
1: MEC was founded in 1973, a long time ago, with the goal of coordinating and providing computer services to the schools of the state of Minnesota. And later on, uh, starting in the late 70s, they went through a, a whole evaluation process, I'm sure that was mired in government red tape, and eventually settled on the Apple II as the candidate for computer placement in state schools.
0: Great for education.
1: Yeah, exactly. Great for education. And uh, no surprise, this contract and this guaranteed placement in Minnesota schools was a big deal for Apple in the late 70s. As you'll know, like the Mac came out in 84. So the Apple II line was the company's bread and butter. And getting such a big deal in place uh, certainly set them on the right path.
0: Well, I remember even recently when the iPad initially came out and Apple was trying to place it as the new education device, that whenever some big school system, whether it was a college, university, or a public school system for younger students, landed a deal with Apple and they were going to provide an iPad to every student or so many iPads per school, that those were brought out as, yeah, as major contract victories.
1: This wasn't all that Mech did, just uh, evaluating computer platforms and ecosystems and choosing one for their school districts. Mech also took it upon itself later to develop software in-house, uh, educational software, of course, with the idea of teaching historical concepts or math and language concepts to children. And their first uh, release went on, I think, to become arguably their biggest and most important and uh, probably they're still most widely known, the Oregon Trail. We've all played various versions of the Oregon Trail or at least seen it mentioned in pop culture. Maybe it's about someone dying of dysentery or maybe it's about (laughs) shooting a buffalo or maybe it's the uh, the heads, the tombstone that you would see uh, that said, here lies Andy, pepperoni and cheese, which I realized in doing the research for this was because this all... Uh, a lot of copies that were circulated around schools were actually pirated and based off of a copy that had like a saved game built into it already. So some kid who typed here lies Andy pepperoni and cheese when one of his uh, like trail mates passed away. uh, Little did that player know that their choice was immortalized for a lot of kids later on. I certainly remember running into this tombstone playing Oregon trail in like elementary school.
0: Yeah, so the basic conceit of the game is that you're starting off in the Midwest somewhere and going on the old-fashioned wagon train to, uh, all the way to the Willamette Valley in Oregon, where you're going to start a wonderful new life and you have your whole family. You put them in a wagon, you hook up some oxen, you buy all of your supplies, and you set off on your extremely dangerous journey. <laughs>
1: the genesis of the software itself uh, was a single programmer, Don Rawich, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that entirely correctly, he actually wrote the first version in BASIC for a computer called the CDC Cyber 70 or 7326, but he published the source and Mech, in the same year that Mech was beginning its Apple II uh, push, they decided to adapt this game for the Apple II so that there would be software to go along with the hardware. And their version of Oregon Trail for the Apple II was released in 1979.
0: So yeah, I remember playing Oregon Trail many, many, many hours in in school and in contexts where it was not necessarily supposed to be played. Um, I think, Brian, you'll remember that our school infamously had a chess club.
1: Yep, where we did everything but play chess.
0: Yes. And I think at some point during our time there, there was a rule instituted that you actually had to attend for the purpose of playing chess instead of for the purpose of playing Oregon trail Mm -hmm. or other computer games. And the attendance at the club plummeted.
1: (laughs) Yeah. We had found it that this was like the quiet room during lunch where there was no one else and we could go in and play Oregon trail, but then we got busted.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that one of the things about the Oregon trail is that it, quickly became less fun to try to beat the game than to do strange things with the game. You already mentioned the tombstone system. So as as you went along, members of your party could die. This was you know, <laughs> fairly morbid. I mean, this is how you lost the game. The only way you could lose the game was if every human in your party died. But if someone got an illness or drowned in a river or some other fatal calamity befell them, you... uh. You got to put a tombstone at that place along the trail, and you got to type in a custom message. Uh, It would populate the name that you chose at the beginning of your journey. And yes, you could type in pretty much anything as your name. So we had all kinds of crazy characters along the trail. And then you could give them a, a epitaph. Uh, to be immortalized, and they they really were. It was written to disc, and then as people played the game from the same disc, you could run across tombstones that had previously been left along the trail. One of the other things that was great about Oregon Trail was that it had— a a crucial part of the game was that you started with a certain amount of food, but it wasn't going to be enough for your months-long journey out into the West. And so a major part of the game was hunting, when you would stop your wagon, you would have the option to hunt as long as you still had enough ammunition, functioning gun, etc. You had to plan ahead, um, and for most of us, that meant uh, we realized that the hunting mini game was actually the most fun part of the game. It was kind of an isometric third person shooter where you had a little little figure with his rifle and his hat, and in the field of play. There would be randomly populated bushes and rocks that you couldn't shoot through. And then various animals would come in from the sides. And as I remember, they they had different speeds and different amounts of of meat that you could obtain from them. And of course, the, the slowest and easiest to hit was the buffalo. And if you killed several buffalo would tell you something like, you've got 750 pounds of meat. You cannot carry it all back to your wagon.
1: I want to say even two buffalo would put you over the threshold of what you could carry back.
0: Yeah. But the fastest and most elusive was the rabbit, which would just zoom, zip from one side of the screen to the other. And so that was the entire purpose of the game in our mind was to successfully hunt a rabbit.
1: I believe we even took to Uh, chanting, kill the wabbit from the uh, opera episode of Bugs Bunny.
0: Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. And uh, we also had some various hunting techniques, including the dance of the hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You could walk around, but very slowly and ineffectively. And otherwise, you just had to stand in place and spin and shoot. And the Dance of the Hunter was sort of a combined spinning s- shooting tactic that would basically just spray bullets in every direction and hope for the best. <laughs> Once we got sick of the, uh, the minigame, the hunting within Oregon Trail, like I said, the object was not to beat the game. Although I, I think, you know, I did a couple of times. Um, and, you know, really, you did it right if you got your entire party there um, with-, with nobody dying along the way, uh, not even your oxen. Um, but we decided that the minigame had gotten a little bit boring and it was kind of obvious what we were doing when we were trying to just hunt all the time. (laughs) We were basically just trying to turn it into a shooter game and the teachers didn't think that that was very educational anymore. Um, but one way that we were able to kind of get away with, uh, playing Oregon Trail the wrong way was that we came up with a contest to see who could die the fastest. So basically just trying to deliberately lose. So you had to come up with, The strategy for giving yourself, like, all the wrong equipment at the beginning. Um, One of the key features, another one of the pop culture tropes of Oregon Trail, is the pace that you set as you went along your journey. And the fastest one was grueling pace. Uh, And that would set the little oxen legs spinning back and forth very quickly and they would tire out and then that would give you problems further down the line. But if the whole point was to cause problems and quickly, grueling pace was your great friend. And I remember we would do this in the lab at school. It was an Apple II lab and there was one Apple IIGS GS in the lab that was way faster than all of the other machines. And basically, as, as far as I can tell, it must've been that all of the animation in the in the game was based off of clock cycles or some operation that was limited by the clock speed of the chip in the Apple II. And so you figured, okay, well, they're all basically the same. And so it's fine. But this 2GS, it was like, when you put it to a grueling pace, it was almost blurred. It was just like, <laughs> it was like you, you would set out from your initial location, grueling pace, vroom, you're at the first river. Okay, forward it. Boom, 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 boom. I win. They're all dead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned fording the river. That's another great tactic to ensure that you're going to die because when you come up to one of the game's many rivers, it'll tell you how deep it is. And no matter how deep it is, it'll always give you the choice to try and ford it. But if it's deeper than like eight feet, you can almost guarantee that someone's going to drown as you try to just like walk across an eight foot deep river. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Oregon Trail for all these reasons and more, was hugely successful. And so not only did it get ported from the Apple II to eventually the Mac and Windows, and even today, I'm sure you can like play a version online. You can play a version for your iOS and Android and mobile platforms.
0: Yeah, we'll be able to link to a lot of web-emulated versions of some of these very early games, uh, Archive.org has done some really good work with that. I think they've been mostly working on DOS versions, but like we said, some of these quickly went cross-platform because of their popularity. I mean, obviously, we didn't live in Minnesota, but we still got to play the Oregon Trail because they recognized that, yeah, they had developed some really good, really popular educational software, and it could be sold not just in Minnesota where there was already a contract for it, but around the country And not every other school district had selected the Apple II. So porting was definitely going on.
1: Like we said, it became available on a variety of different platforms and was usually updated with better graphics and better interface mechanisms to better support the platform.
0: Yeah. So I remember that when we got our first Mac, there was a new version of the Oregon Trail, which had been... It it was released as a CD-ROM game. Oh my gosh, it has to be so much better. It's it's that Oregon Trail game. You love it from school. You're going to have a great time. And got a copy of it. And the basic mechanic was the same, where you're in a side-scrolling view, you have to make decisions about fording the river, etc., and plotting out your course. But the major, major disappointment of this version, which I think was for Mac and Windows, was basically the same same updated version in the mid 90s the major disappointment was they completely changed the hunting yeah <laughs> which as i said was a, our favorite part of the game at least speaking for us and in the mac version they said oh my you have you have a mouse now you can point and click to hunt and it was like it was like a cheesy arcade game not like a arcade video game like a carnival game where like things would just sort of like pop out per- targets would pop out from behind a bush or cross uh, along the way. And you had to just have your mouse at the ready and click on the deer or click on the buffalo. And it was not at all the same. I mean, with the one on the Apple II, you at least had to kind of, like you had to lead your shot because it would cross the screen as the animal was also crossing at basically the same speed because the bullets were not very fast. Um, it, was, it was not at all the same on the Mac, which was a little bit unfortunate. But that's okay, because the franchise was so successful that they decided to take trails to other parts of the world.
1: So in addition to the Oregon Trail, you could pick up and play the Amazon Trail, the African Trail, the Mayan Trail, and the Yukon Trail.
0: The the irony here is that I think except with the exception of the Yukon Trail, there were no other trails by that name. The franchise is Geographic Place Trail, and we can go anywhere in the world. Yeah,
1: right. All of Africa
0: on one trail. Yeah, I'm not sure what trail that is. Uh, I never played the Africa Trail or the Mayan Trail or the Amazon Trail, although I think Amazon Trail was probably the most successful of those later follow-ups. But I did have a copy of Yukon Trail, which it was a little bit different because all of the navigation was different. There were, I think, three different phases of navigation instead of just being constantly in your oxen-drawn wagon, and as I recall, the, the whole goal was to get into the Yukon quickly because you were going there to find gold, and if people had got there before you, it would all be taken. And the last phase was you had to navigate a rapids in like a canoe, and it was again a mouse-based, uh, mouse-based interaction uh, play control. And this canoe just had, like, the worst lag and fishtailed all over the place. And if you hit one rock, you were basically done. Not that you actually lost the game, but you would would hit one rock. And this is after playing the game for, like, 20 minutes just to get to this point. If you hit one rock, your chances at getting a good stake in the Yukon were totally scuttled. Which made it not very fun, again, to play for the win, because... It was it, it you would spend all this time and then just forget it. It's not happening,
1: yeah, in the very final stage.
0: it did have a couple of fun mini games, maybe not nearly as fun as hunting, but there was a uh, you would stop in saloons along the way, and there was one where you could play a card game um that had it was a fairly simple card game, AI, but it was good enough that it was actually a challenge, like I mean it was every bit as entertaining as Solitaire on a computer, and even more so. And I would just play along to that point because it would only take you about five minutes to get there and then just sit and play the card game. And you could actually gamble on the card game, too. And the whole point of the game was to get money. And you could actually just get more money just by sitting there playing the card game, if you were patient.
1: (laughs) The Trail series of games were not the only series of games that Mech ended up releasing. Although there is a note that by 1995... The Oregon Trail was about one-third of their annual revenue, which is a pretty successful game for a company.
0: Right, and it's $30 million in annual revenue in 1995 dollars. They were selling a lot of software.
1: Yeah. Uh, and some of that other software was the Munchers series. I think it started with Number Munchers, but it eventually went on to Word Munchers and Super Munchers.
0: Yeah, the, the Munchers games were another staple of our elementary school education uh, I remember having, I think I had a version of number munchers that was a DOS port and it was also available, it started on the Apple II and that was definitely available in our school system and was thought of as a totally wholesome way to spend your time because you were actually doing m- math the entire time. You would be given uh, a rule of what type of numbers you had to go and munch and there was a a grid where you moved your little muncher guy who looked like he's kind of like a cartoon frog.
1: Yeah. Like how a three-year-old would draw a frog.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he had a bigger body than he had legs and he walked around instead of hopping, but you move, he was definitely green. You, you would move him around and you would land on a number that was one that you wanted that met the rule and you would munch it and you had to clear the board of everything that met the rule and if you, if you munched something that didn't meet the rule, then you would lose a life. To make it a little bit more challenging, though, I mean, that would be... You could take forever to do that. To make it a little bit more challenging, though, there were enemies as well, which were called troggles. I am not sure why they are called troggles.
1: I'm not either.
0: There were actually five different kinds of troggles. And they each had their own AI, fairly simple AI. I mean, they were programmatic um but it gave a bit of strategy to the game too so it was not only educational but you definitely had to in later levels especially they got faster and more of the ones that uh where the smarter ais could appear in the later levels so there were five different types the re- reggies the bashfuls the helpers the workers and the smarties and they all had uh They all had their fake Latin names like Troglus Laborus and Troglus Normalis, and Troglus Smarticus, which is really bad fake Latin. (laughs) Um, It was like the the Smarties, the the hardest enemies, would home in on you, so you would have to actively run away from them. And the other ones would change things that were on the board. So you thought, oh, I've covered all of that area of the board. And then it would drop things that you had to go back and collect.
1: And there's a fun note that I had forgotten from playing this game. But the troggles, it says in Wikipedia, were quite cannibalistic. Oh, that's right. If one troggle entered a square already occupied by another, uh, one would eat the other.
0: Yeah, so you could kind of play them against each other. So if you had one of the ones that was the smarty that was that was coming after you and you had to actively run away, you could lure it into the path of one of the dumb ones.
1: Yeah. That was always walking in a straight line. So you knew where that one would end up.
0: Yeah. And eliminate it from the board that way.
1: Yeah. Uh, so like Ed said, the, the number one was, uh, numbers that fit a rule, like multiples of three or even even numbers. But there were also word things like pick all the letters that are vowels or pick all the words that contain this vowel sound. And, uh, I remember playing both variants of these probably all the way through K through four. Uh, It's a big part of my childhood. And in a throwback to one of our recent episodes here on this show about Easter eggs, we didn't mention this then we should mention it now. If your computer's system clock uh, was set and you played this game between December 1st and December 25th, all the characters would wear little Santa hats.
0: Very seasonal. Tis the season. Indeed. One of the latest games in the franchise was called Super Munchers. And I had this for the Mac. And I remember playing it. Super Munchers was interesting because unlike Number Munchers, where there was a pretty well-defined realm of what you were going to be asked about, and you could kind of customize it as, as you wanted, in Super Munchers, there were all kinds of different categories. It was almost like trivia as opposed to having to apply some skill on the fly. So I'm looking at on the Macintosh garden here, and it, it would give you this example that they have here in the screenshot is singers or musicians. And the entire grid is just filled with names. But it's things like Cher, Andrew Jackson, Geraldo Rivera, Ronald Reagan, and but the same exact gameplay mechanic. The thing that was super, though, about super munchers was that you had a little power meter that you could fill up, and if you filled up your power meter and then went to a special spot on the board, you your muncher would get a cape and become invincible for a while, and you could fly around and get all of the correct answers that you needed to clear the level.
1: Mech also put out some other software, some puzzle games that I guess may have maybe super munchers kind of opened the door for, where you had to do more general logic puzzles or a little bit of like art history. And these games were Secret Island of Dr. Quandry and Museum Madness. I remember these existed on, I think, our Mac lab in fifth and sixth grade.
0: I remember Dr. Quandry being around, but I don't think I ever played it.
1: Yeah, same. I think I got frustrated because it wasn't the like, you pick it up and play. It was more like you move around in different rooms in the museum or different places on the island. It was a much slower paced game. That you couldn't get through the majority of in a lunchtime. So I didn't really spend a lot of time with those.
0: Yeah, I mean, the things that happened in video games in general in the time between, say, the original release of Oregon Trail and some of these later titles from Mech was that the technology was significantly improving, as we saw even within Oregon Trail, from Apple II to the Mac and gaining full color, mouse controls, and really the ability to have save files that went far beyond Here Lies, uh, what's his name, Pizza Bob? Andy, Andy Pepperoni and Cheese. (laughs) That's it. Um, And so the games got more involved. And like you said, this was both good and bad for educational situations, because It was good because maybe a lot more of these games were actually being played by kids in the home as opposed to only being available at school. In the late 70s, probably the only place that most young children were going to have access to computers was in the school setting. But by the time that the Mac was out, there were many, many more personal home computers. And so they went more to the model of having deeper, more involved games. You buy a game on a CD-ROM, you expect not to be able to just breeze through it in 20 minutes and have limited replay value. So it kind of affected the dynamic of what was going into the schools versus what was going at home, I feel like.
1: Yeah, and actually coming right out of that, the end of Mech as the state organization is kind of sad because they realized what hits they had uh, in their software releases and how they had to invest more upfront capital in keeping up with the better computers and better computing platforms. And so they spun off, the state of Minnesota spun off Mech as a private company in 1991. And the company actually went public in 94, only to be acquired by another company called Softkey one year later in 95. There's a sad final note at the end of the Mech Wikipedia page that the original Mech offices of whatever Mech subcorporation within Softkey closed in October 1999 due to layoffs.
0: So yeah, a pretty quick downward spiral. For some for some really beloved IP, especially those those munchers and trail games. So with with Mech behind us, let's move on to our our next big name software publisher for kids and schools in the Apple II days and beyond, which is Broderbund Software, another one where I immediately remember the logo. It's the Three Crowns. Broderbund was founded in 1980 by two brothers, Doug and Gary Carlston, and I think according to Wikipedia, their sister joined in the enterprise a little bit later. So it was a family business, but then went uh much bigger. Uh it was for the purpose of marketing a game that I believe Doug had written called Galactic Empire. And I had not heard of this game a little bit before my time in 1980. It was an Apple II game, and it looks it's hard to be mean to old video games. They're working with extremely limited resources. But we found some footage on YouTube, and it looks like not the world's most exciting way to take over the galaxy. There's sort of a a view screen part of the interface that reminds me a little bit of in one of our favorite games for the Mac Escape Velocity, when you would land on a planet that there would be a picture representing the planet that you had landed on, and they all looked like they were done in KPT Bryce, which I assume they were. Um, But all of the ones in Galactic Empire, well, KPT Bryce was a good 15 years down the line, and they were basically done with the ellipse tool. So in this gameplay footage, for the majority of the time, there's just kind of a purple blob, and then it turns into a blue blob, and then they attack someone and things happen. Anyway, so Galactic Empire was the beginning of the video game empire that was Broderbund Software. And even though it's not the one that we remember, uh, but apparently in Galactic Empire, many of the place names, I guess planet names, were taken from various languages in Africa. This is, again, cribbing from Wikipedia, which is never wrong. <laughs> um, and in... uh Afrikaans, which is a combination of Dutch, which was the colonial language, and the native languages in South Africa. Uh, in Afrikaans, a group of merchants was named Bruderband, which means association of brothers. I guess a band of brothers, <laughs> um, which makes sense because it's two brothers starting a company. So... Quote, to emphasize its family origin, while avoiding a connection with the white supremacist South African organization of the same name, oops, the Carlstons altered the spelling when naming their company, and it is, as we know it, Broderbund with U-N-D instead of O-N-D at the end, and the first O has a slash through it.
1: Their first big success was not actually a video game, but it was some graphic design software called The Print Shop. This was first released for the Apple II in 1984 and was later ported to other systems, including the Macintosh. We definitely had a copy of this on our family computer growing up, which we unashamedly used for like every birthday card from (laughs) 1989 to 1994 because you could like tell it what you wanted the outside of the card to look like and what you wanted the inside message to say. And it would print it out on the single eight and a half by 11 piece of paper so that when you folded it, everything was where it needed to be for a card. I have fond memories of the print shop.
0: I I seem to remember that the print shop was actually fairly expensive software, as most things were at that point. And I I think our parents had a conversation back and forth because my parents had figured out how to make cards in Clarisworks, and they were trying to see whether it was worth paying, you know, $99 or or whatever it was in 1994 for the print shop. And in the end, I don't think we ever acquired a copy of the print shop.
1: It's sad for my family. We should have learned. As evidenced by a previous episode of this show, we were both heavy into Clarisworks.
0: You can make anything in Clarisworks. You really can. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to Broderbund Software. Yeah. Everyone in the world has heard of their most famous title because it's Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And if you haven't heard of it, shame on you. (laughs) Uh, So Carmen Sandiego was first released in 1985 for several different platforms, including the Apple II. My first memories of Carmen Sandiego were definitely playing it on a DOS box that my family had, our first personal computer. And one of the interesting features of Carmen Sandiego... So the the premise of the game is that there's a criminal mastermind, Carmen Sandiego, who dresses in a red trench coat and fancy big hat and has a bunch of henchmen stationed all across the world. She would perform some heist, and you had to follow clues to hop around the world and find her ultimate location. And uh, as I recall, the way that the game worked is that if you caught her... Multiple times, you would kind of level up, um, or you would, you would get all the way down to catching her, and then you would wind up with one of the underlings instead. And they would go, check, but she's still on the loose. And you had to, like, you had to level up and get your, your credibility and skill to the point where you could actually capture the title character. So it was released in 1985 for the Apple II. And one of the interesting things is, uh, I think on a recent episode, we talked about dongles the hardware dongles that were required for software uh, as basically primitive DRM where you had to plug them into the machine. And if they weren't there, the software wouldn't run. Uh, Well, Carmen San Diego also had some physical copy protection. Uh, And this was a fairly common tactic for software in the eighties, which was that included with the game would be some, something physical usually like a poster or a book of some sort. And what would happen was at launch of the piece of software, whether it was a game or piece of productivity software, it would ask for like a word or phrase. It would say, what's the third word on page 86? Or something like that. And if you couldn't provide the word, then you couldn't run the software. It would just quit. And so Carmen San Diego had a clever, uh it was kind of not just this copy protection, but also part of the game mechanic. So they included the World Almanac and Book of Facts, and you would have to, yes, enter these arbitrary things from the book to be able to continue, and that way it would combat piracy, but it was also the resource that you would use to actually solve clues within the game.
1: Right, because the mechanic wasn't, you would just hop from place to place to place in a sequence, at each uh, turn of events, you would have a choice of maybe like five places in the world to go. And uh, if you had been following the correct trail, locals in the area wherever you were currently would give you like fun little clues. Like uh, I heard, like sometimes they'd give you clues about the perpetrator so you could pick them out of a lineup and get your warrant And like the example I always come back to is like, I heard he likes his music just as spicy as his food. And it would be that kind of thing like, oh, he's into salsa dancing. (laughs) And uh, they would give clues like that also about the like where you were going. Like, I heard that this country's official language is such and such. And if you didn't know anything about the world, but you saw that you could go to these five different places, you could reference the included almanac and be like, oh, the only one that fits all these clues I've gathered is this one. And continue your chase.
0: Right. And this was the sly trick to get you to learn geography, was that if you had to look that you could do it all by brute force by looking them up. But as you played, you would actually get to know what the different places were, the characteristics of the different places and the countries that they were situated in.
1: A Where in the USA is Carmen San Diego version was released the next year in 1986. And I believe this is the first one that was available on the Mac. This is the one that my parents bought for us and we played uh, on their first family Macintosh. And I have lots of memories of uh, tracking down crooks. Uh, we just talked about how this game had value in uh, in education, but it also had some elements that were just for fun, like a game, uh, from the humor of the clues to the way even in 1986 on a black and white System 6 computer... Uh it had little sprite animations that would signify whether you were on the right track. Like maybe uh, a henchman would sneak across the the bitmap image of whatever landmark you were currently at if you knew
0: you were in the right place. Oh yeah, that's right. Because if you were on the right track, like you would see actually Kerman San Diego sometimes come across. And if uh if you were on the wrong track, it would just be some faceless guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: And then at the very end, there would be a, a quick cut scene of like a police car chase, and uh, there was always this this tense moment. I remember very clearly in this early episode, uh, in this early version of where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego, where the criminal's car and the police car would kind of chase each other, Yakety sack style, left and right across the street. <laughs> and then uh, there'd be a couple seconds of silence and no motion. And you would either have a police character walking back from the side of the screen looking triumphant because you had nailed the right crook with an appropriate warrant or dejected. You didn't have a warrant at all, or you had a warrant for the wrong person. And I remember as a kid, those like three or four seconds while they were (laughs) building
0: extreme tension,
1: such extreme tension, I would have little like anxiety spells (laughs) over like, I hope the cop looks happy. Uh, and it wasn't just limited to where in the world is Carmen San Diego and where in the USA is Carmen San Diego, but there are also versions where in Europe is Carmen San Diego, where in time is Carmen San Diego. That was when it started to get a
0: little bit weird, I thought.
1: I know, same. Uh, there's also where in America's past, so not just general time, and where in space is Carmen San Diego. Obviously, each of those trying to get you to learn more about. Europe, uh, I guess, contemporary Europe, world history, American history, and space.
0: Yeah. One of the other things that was a big feature of Carmen Sandiego in the original versions for Apple II and DOS was full VGA color graphics. And I think that this a little bit harkens back to Galactic Empire, maybe, that when you would arrive in a new place, there would be, again, a frame part of the window that would just be a scene representing that place. So, you know, if you, were in, if you were in China, it would show some historical pagoda building. Or if you were in New York City, it would show the Statue of Liberty. Or if you were in Paris, it would show the Eiffel Tower. These sorts of things. So you would see a what for the time was beautifully rendered landmark that went with the various places. And of course, as they updated the game over time, Those graphics got better and better photorealistic as they went along. The next major version of Carmen Sandiego, though, was uh, version 3.0, which was the first one that went to CD-ROM instead of floppy disk, and it contained many QuickTime movies. And uh, most importantly was that many of these QuickTime movies, which played into the flow of the game, giving you instructions on where to go, featured the one and only Lynn Thigpen, the chief, from the TV game show of the same name, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which ran on PBS for, I think, four or five years in the mid-90s and was absolutely 100% appointment viewing for kids of our age at that time. It was a complete sensation. So Lynn Thigpen was the chief, um, there would be three recruits who were the contestants on the game, and Greg Lee, the uh, the host of the game, and it was all like really cheesy detective type stuff. And of course, the thing that brought it all together was the theme song by Rockapella. Well she <laughs> sneaks about the world from to she's a down to Belize, take you for a ride. China,
1: in the world is... in San Diego. It was absolutely appointment viewing. And the final stage where the, uh, the lowest two scoring contestants had been eliminated, uh, the final stage for the highest scorer to like really win the game and get the full suite of prizes was they were assigned a continent. And uh, the host would na- call out names of countries on the continent and you had to plant a flag on uh, the the map of that continent correctly. And whenever a kid got Africa, you're just like, oh, man.
0: He's there's, done. He's, there's no way. <laughs> I think that's the definitely the lasting legacy of Carmen Sandiego, maybe the biggest lasting legacy of, of Broderbund overall. There was another, uh, you know, we said that with some of the games, as they expanded the franchise, kind of went off the rails. Um, and there was a, I, I remember after, where in the World is Carmen Sandiego went off the air. was only in reruns and much less fun that way. Um, there was a Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. Show? TV show on PBS. Oh, man. And um, I think they tried to make it be like, you know, the hip new futuristic one because they've got time machines. And they had a theme song that they were really hoping was as catchy as the opera theme for Where in the World. But it just it it did not make it. <laughs> As for
1: Broderbund Software, they did go on to release some other software titles and even a few software series. Um, One of them that I'd like to highlight is KidPix. KidPix was a paint program originally just for the Macintosh. It wasn't developed initially by the team at Broderbund. It was uh, just made by one guy, Craig Hickman, after he, quote, saw his son struggle with Mac paint. And uh that's just kind of funny to me because you know Mac Paint when it came out was like, "Oh my gosh, this is the easiest, most intuitive way to create graphics on a on a computer, use a graphical user interface. You have tools that look like the real world counterparts
0: to make the the present day parallel. How many pictures on Twitter have you seen going around recently with?" Parents who have given their young kids uh iPad Pro and Pencil in the past month. Right. It's it's definitely still an application that is totally relevant and required for for children's software is to have a really good environment for them to create art in.
1: So Craig released the first version of KidPix in 1989. Roterbund uh, I guess worked out a deal with him and started publishing it in nineteen ninety-one. I think still, just for Mac in the beginning, but eventually for a whole host of platforms and Kidpix was unique in that it had a lot of the same tools you had paint brushes, paint buckets, pencil tools, uh, marquee tools to select and move things around. but it made it more accessible and more fun to kids, like for example, when you would select the uh, an area of the canvas and then start moving it around, you would hear the sound effect of a truck backing up, and when you released the mouse. Uh, You would hear that sound of like tire squealing as someone hit the brakes. And they also had really cool and fun eraser tools, which when you think about it's kind of backwards. You don't want to make the the most fun (laughs) tools in a painting program, the ways that erase the canvas. Uh, But they were there. It's dangerous. It's like the grouch. It is. It's exactly like the grouch. Uh, the one that I'm most clearly thinking of was a stick of dynamite. It literally was your tur- your cursor turned into a stick of dynamite. When you clicked anywhere on the canvas, the little fuse would burn down, and then the entire canvas would explode in alternating black and white circles. And then after the animation was finished, you'd have a blank document. Fortunately, I think the second most fun tool was Undo Guy. So if you were a kid who had just spent however much time creating a work of art only to be lured in by the stick of dynamite, you could undo one action back. It didn't have infinite undo like Photoshop today. Uh, But it was just a, a little 32 by 32 pixel icon of a little bald dude at the end of your tool palette. And if you clicked him, he would just undo the last thing. But that wasn't all. There had to be sound effects. Everything in this application had sound effects. And uh, obviously, my family had the English version, so he would cycle through a bunch of things like, oops, oh no. But uh, in researching this episode, it seemed like the application was localized. Uh, so like in Spanish, you might have something like, ay, caramba.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. I don't think I ever had kid pics at home. I know there were a couple computers at school that had it um, at home. I was... Using ClarisWorks and HyperCard for all of my painting needs. You know, you can't get serious productivity work done in KidPix.
1: Uh, Broderbund also published, uh, like, just like they published KidPix without developing it in-house. They published a little game you might have heard of, maybe on the show, Mist. Oh yeah, I've heard of that one. Mist was developed by Cyan in 1993, and we dedicated a whole episode to it, but by that time Broderbund was very successful coming off the heels of the Carmen Sandiego series so they had the money to uh produce the 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 physical software handle distribution and retail and get it out there
0: and get a nice cut of it i'm sure
1: i'm sure yeah
0: one last game that was specifically targeted towards kids and again in the edutainment range was a 1996 game that i remember playing first on the mac but i think was also cross platform called the logical journey of the zumbinis and what is a zumbini well it's a cute little blue thing <laughs> <laughs> um and they all had little, they all had customizable features like you could change the color of their noses or their hair or their eyes and then based on all of these traits that was how they progressed through the game and it was a series of logic puzzles and they were actually fairly advanced logic puzzles. So we were in like fifth and sixth grade around that time. And I remember that we had it in the math class at our school. And I just remember being bad at it, just straight up bad um, to the point that I didn't even realize what the overall progression of the game was. There, There are different levels uh, the one that I remember is where you have to create a pizza for a monster who lives in a tree. Uh, <laughs> I think this is perhaps the best-known part of the game. But I never got past that part. All of my Zumbinis got kicked out.
1: By building a pizza, you'd say, like, I want sauce, I want cheese, I want mushrooms. And he would never say, I don't want or I do want any of these things. But if you gave him a pizza, he'd say, like,
0: yeah, yuck. Something on that I don't like! Or not enough on it. More- toppings! And you you would be able to keep, like, I think you were able to keep a history of the past four that you made. And if you started making too many, then you would just start punting your guys into the ocean. <laughs> um, I came back to this game, I think, in high school when I had realized what the various logical and problem solving techniques that you needed. Like, you kind of needed a piece of paper on the side to, to help you out with some of these. Um, and I didn't even realize that the whole purpose of the game was to clear a series of four levels. And then there was like a Zumbini bank where you put them in little cubbies and you had to fill the whole thing by doing multiple journeys. And then from that point, you like unlocked the entire second half of the game that I had no idea existed.
1: It was basically just like how, get a certain number of waves of Zumbinis through all these levels. And that's how you you beat the game. You've You've saved them from like, whatever the starting point is and getting them safely to the end.
0: And uh Zumbinis is is still around uh on various platforms today. Uh it's changed hands uh through several different companies but still exists. One of the other delightful features of Zumbinis is that um you you could create random ones, and all of your guys would get random names at the beginning. So there's a screenshot here, and there's a randomly generated Zumbini. He's got kind of spiky hair and glasses and a green nose, and, uh, and he's got feet. Oh, yeah, the, you could change their feet. It was feet, roller skates, a spring, uh, a flying one, and I can't even tell what this other one is. It was like a little
1: locomotive wheel.
0: Oh, yeah, like, like a caveman wheel. And this actually played a role into whether you could pass the game because the traits of the Zumbinis mattered in certain levels. In the one, it was just pizza. But in other ones, there there was one where you had to cross a bridge and you had to figure out what the rules were as to who was allowed to cross the bridge in what order. And it depended on what kind of features they had. Or you would need to get a certain number of flying ones through to a later level because you needed at least three flying guys to pass the level really much more advanced than um number munchers eat all the multiples of 3 um but they all had random names too so this one in a screenshot here is his name is lufipi uh you you mentioned that yeah like
1: the attributes that you give your Zumbinis matter uh in some ways like you have to identify which attributes can like basically fit through which doors to progress and um in ones where it doesn't actually matter like literally what the specific attribute is, but more of just like a pattern matching uh I also revisited <laughs> revisited this in high school, and with each like wave of zumbinis that you send into the game, I think it's sixteen and you can make up to two of like an identical uh with all the same attributes and so you can you can basically send out eight zumbinis multiplied twice, which means that you they can all have, like, the same hairstyle and the same nose color. And so for some of the early levels, it doesn't even matter what you do because, like, they all have something in common as they cross the bridge, and that's, like, the key to, to beating that level. And so I realized that. And I uh, so it's kind of like... A, it's not a cheat, per se, but it's it's not the way the game's supposed to be played. Okay, let's move on to one of our final large companies that put out a couple uh, franchises of software. And this one is appropriately titled The Learning Company. Not to be confused with The Learning Channel, by the way, which puts out such educational content as like Storage Wars or stuff in that (laughs) vein. (laughs) Um, The Learning Company was founded in 1980 by three educators with PhDs and one ex-Atari programmer.
0: Sounds like a good combination. Yeah, that sounds
1: like a fun company. Uh, They dedicated themselves to creating educational software specifically for the Apple II. They were successful enough that they were approached by IBM in 1983 to also create software for IBM's upcoming PC Junior. And their first big franchise of software that they released was Reader Rabbit, first released ultimately in 1986 for the Apple II, the Macintosh, and DOS. And this was... In the vein of word munchers, but not so much in like a grid that you have to follow and more in just dressing up uh, simple questions like what is the vowel sound in book? Does it match with good? Does it match with food? And you click the right option and like your little rabbit or other woodland character does a little animation to reward you as a kid. It's definitely aimed at younger ages than most of the software we've been discussing,
0: but it was successful enough. Yeah, this was one of those ones where um, maybe some of our listeners are going, why are you guys so excited about some of these titles? And it was because because they were out and available in schools or in our homes at the exact right time for us, the age that they were pitched to, whereas others were not. Like we just said, Zumbini's was too hard for us when it was first (laughs) released. Whereas Reader Rabbit was generally, I mean, it was pitched at a very low literacy level. You know, it was, it was literacy skills for children. Um, and I mean, I'm still in this field professionally now doing things with English language learning. And I know that this is, you know, this is very introductory. And if you were past that by the time you got into school, uh, it wasn't going to be particularly useful for you and not even really fun. Um, there was, there was no hunting mini game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there really wasn't much in the way of gameplay. It was more like dressed up quizzes. Or, or memorization exercises?
0: So it was really, you know, met the company's name, The Learning Company. This was really education software, not games with an educational bent, um, at least this title. Uh, this is a fairly successful title. It still exists in some form or another, I think. Uh, at least the most recent release of it was a version for the Nintendo Wii in 2011. So who knows? Maybe it could be coming to tvOS uh, <laughs> some, sometime soon. You're right. I laughed initially, but I wouldn't rule that out at all. Well, I mean, you know, there are going to be three and four-year-olds who need help with literacy forever. <laughs> That's just a fact. You know, it, it's an evergreen market. So as long as it meets its target goals for its target audience, it's, it's going to be the kind of thing that is successful and ages well, as long as you... Put a little care into making it look modern.
1: The other big franchise that The Learning Company put out was Super Solvers, or later Super Seekers. And I always recognized these titles by the protagonist character that you, the player, played as, which I described as a faceless guy in a puffy blue coat and a red Peter Pan-type hat.
0: That is 100% accurate.
1: <laughs> and the the collar on the blue coat is extremely popped. So you never see the character's face.
0: No, it goes right up to the hat. It must be very cold everywhere. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think this is so that the, the character's gender is ambiguous and anybody can play and feel like they are assuming the role of the character.
0: Oh, that's true. He's wearing shorts, too. It is wearing shorts. <laughs> she is wearing shorts. So it can't be that cold.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a weird outfit. Uh, But the first game in the series was Midnight Rescue and uh, you are inside like some kind of uh, evil maniac's mansion and there are a bunch of robots trying to hunt you down. You've got to like find clues and solve puzzles to eventually figure out your way to like the ultimate room where you have to figure out oh my gosh, like the the antagonist in this game is actually inside the one of The Master of, these, of Mischief. Oh, excuse me, the Master of Mischief is actually inside one of these robots. And if I've been paying attention, I should have the clues to like choose which robot to unmask the Master of Mischief. Uh, it was a weird game. I didn't spend a lot of time playing it. There was actually another game that I think like revitalized or boosted the franchise because I remember seeing this next game in a lot of places. And I think it, it may have been when they switched from calling their franchise super solvers to super seekers because this game is called treasure mountain.
0: Oh, I had treasure mountain. I had treasure mountain on DOS It came out in 1990. Uh, and this was another one of those games that posed a challenge to me when I was very young and very bad at video games. And I revisited it a little bit later. Um, I think after we had had a Mac, but still had the old DOS box kicking around in the house. And Treasure Mountain, you're the same character, but you have to progress up a mountain. And there were individual flat stages to the mountain. And you had to go around and answer questions, find clues, and I think get a key that would allow you up to the next level uh, before you could go all the way up to the mountain layer of uh, what's his name? The Master of Mischief, uh, <laughs> who's really a crazy-looking character. He's got a big, big mustache and Einstein hair, and a very strange villain. Um, I remember Treasure Mountain being pretty weird. So you're you go around and you're in this outdoor setting, and there were elves that would pop out and pose challenges to you and they would also shoot like fairy dust at you and that was the way that you could <laughs> die is if you got like oh hit, by, hit by elf dust um so you had to go around and there was a platforming component to it so you'd have to sort of leap over them to collect the things that you needed and make your way up the mountain um as i recall there was some you know, some problem solving that y- you were you were posed uh challenges along the way. And that was the educational bit of it. But it was mostly a platformer. And then you got to the top and you had to uh you had to defeat the Master of Mischief by going up a series of ladders that you could jump between and he, it was very kind of Donkey Kong ask, you'd be throwing stuff down at you. And if you got hit you you lost and didn't make it all the way all the way to the top. Another one of these games where the replay value was all in uh basically the number of completes that you did and as you made it to 10, com- 10 complete games, 50 complete games, 100 complete games, you would you would unlock things.
1: Yeah. And I remember as a kid playing this, completing the game felt like it would take forever. But in reality, it was probably...
0: Oh, they're like 12-minute games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember Super Mario World feeling like it takes forever. It's a, it's a three-hour game. You can sit down and, and get all the goals in three hours.
1: The learning company is where we kind of tie in the narrative of these three big companies. Because uh, in 1995, well after both of these franchises have been proven successes, the learning company was acquired by a company called SoftKey. And you might have recalled uh, SoftKey had also previously acquired Mech. So in 1995, things like Oregon Trail and Muncher's intellectual property is now under the same parent company as Reader Rabbit and Super Solvers. And this parent company was eventually renamed The Learning Company after a couple acquisitions more in 1996. And then this company, The Learning Company, was acquired by Mattel. Yeah, Mattel, like who makes in real life toys and games, uh, things in the physical world as a move to like kind of brace for the future of software and the internet they bought the learning company in 1998. Mattel also bought Broderbund in 1999. One big happy family. <laughs> yeah. So now Carmen Sandiego and the Zumbinis and, uh, everybody else. And KidPix are all under the same parent company, the learning company as a part of Mattel. Uh, but only two years after this, the acquisition, uh, they realized that it it wasn't going anywhere. Like they were still selling software, software that was being sold at retail in boxes with CDs and manuals and sometimes included almanacs and photos guides to the USA. And it wasn't taking off and buoying their like non-physical world part of the company as they thought it, it would. So they sold off the learning company and its assets to another company called Gorse Technology for a $3.6 billion loss. Oof. Which uh, multiple uh, business like Business Week, I think, and and, and other financial uh, journalism outlets just basically called a fiasco.
0: Yeah. Ignominious way for all of these beloved titles to go. And of course, as we've mentioned throughout, some of them the IP has made its way to other hands and is still being developed in one way or another, but not in the same way that it was in the classic Apple II and early Mac era when we came to know and love it, as did many other people. So let's not end on a downer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So all three of those companies were huge because they got their start with the Apple II. But what about software that was specifically for the Mac and also targeted at kids or families. Because in the early to mid-90s, Apple started putting some weight behind the Performa line, which was targeted as the home PC for families. And one of the differentiators of the Performa was that it came with lots of bundled software. So I remember there was only ever one Performa in my family, and it was one of the later models. But as I recall, it came with an entire literal binder of cds like -hmm. you would have in your car with music cds yeah 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 Um, it came with binder of cds it was all cd roms that was the included software uh, most of which had to actually run from cd although some of it could be installed to the hard disk and the bundling deals changed frequently over time but there were some titles that kind of persisted through the entire run of the performer, there was always going to be some sort of encyclopedia application that was included. I think it was Grawlier's encyclopedia for a long time, which was, you know, they were in big war with Microsoft and Carta. Who was going to be the dominant encyclopedia of the future? Of course, not thinking of the internet and Wikipedia, which put them all out of business.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Well, I mean, didn't put the entire companies out of business. Microsoft still exists, but I don't think they're developing Encarta anymore. But anyway, so there was lots of software that was bundled with the Performa. It was family-oriented, and so there were definitely kids-oriented titles that were in there. And at this point, I was getting later in in middle school, high school, and so some of these titles were not really geared to me anymore, but I do remember uh, playing with some of them, and some of them were just straight-up games. Not the, the learning company software of, uh, of the earlier era. One of them that I remember, though, that was sort of for enter- entertainment and learning purposes was a, a weird one that I spent a lot of time with because it was one of the few games on my grandpa's computer. <laughs> and it was called Widget Workshop, and it took me almost an hour of googling to figure out the correct name of this piece of software i knew it, I, I knew it had the word widget in it and in 2015 just starting from there with a google search it, it's rough it's rough but i hit upon it it's called widget workshop and uh again according to wikipedia the famous encyclopedia company <laughs> Widget Workshop was released in 1995 and is one of the more obscure Maxis products. So this was developed by Maxis, who are perhaps better known for titles like SimCity and later The Sims. And Widget Workshop was designed by Lauren Elliott, co-author of the Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego game series. So it has some pedigree, even though this is a kind of obscure title. Perhaps one of the reasons that it made it in there with that bundled software deal. This game did not come to me because we went to the store and bought it off the shelf. It came as part of the Performa package. And how did they get the clout to have this kind of bizarro game? Is it even really a game get shipped with Apple, one of Apple's hardware products? Well, I think you say it. it's designed by the Carmen Sandiego lady. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, you're-, you're in. <laughs> exactly. So the whole thing of this was there, you could do it as a sandbox or there were these predetermined puzzles where there was this whole array of widgets, which were basically um, they were basically little like black box machines where they would have inputs and outputs. And depending on what you connected them to, they would have different effects. So um, there were ones that did like AND gates and OR gates like in electronics or ones that did math or ones... You would have to turn a light switch on or off, ones that made noise. Um, And you had to set up these kind of Rube Goldberg devices virtually on the screen and then get it to do what the target goal was. And in the challenge or puzzle mode, you didn't have the entire library of all the things because if you did, then it would be trivial to say, here, make something that turns a light on. You could just go uh, power, switch, light, done. Um, They would give you seven different things, none of which, none of which looked like they could successfully turn the light bulb on and you had to hook them all together in a certain way so that you would solve the puzzle. Yes, definitely an odd little software title, but uh, as I recall, quite a bit of fun.
1: There was a small software company that actually secured a, a pretty significant deal for them where they got to bundle a whole string of their games.
0: And not relying on the clout of previous famous game creator. Exactly. Uh, And this is Pangea software. We've mentioned them a couple times before. In our Easter eggs episode, we talked about a weird little program that they made called Gerbils that was released in 1996 and showed off some of the 3D capabilities of the Mac at that time. But their relationship with Apple goes back a little bit earlier than that. Uh, So they started a deal bundling software in 1995. And one of the first titles that they released, and they were a Mac shop. So this was a Mac only game that I know, uh, I played very little, but I knew it was there on the Performa was a game called Power Pete, a delightfully bizarre game. It was a top-down shooter. And the premise of the game was that you were Power Pete, who was an action figure hero. And you were in a toy store where all of the toys had gone rogue and you had to basically run around and shoot them <laughs> and pound them into submission uh, and rescue bunnies to beat the game. And you
1: needed like batteries to, for power-ups or, or life points, basically.
0: Yeah, and you would go through various themed worlds that were supposed to represent these different areas of the toy store. So there would be a, an entire area that was all populated by dinosaurs, and then you would go into space, and then there would be like Old West. And you know everything that got rolled into Toy Story uh, was kind <laughs> of there in this game, but with a, a very strange protagonist. And, and as I recall, challenging gameplay. I, w- I would just die on the first level and go, eh, this isn't fun.
1: Well, if you wanted to go through it now, you wouldn't want to search for Power Pete. You might want to instead search for Mighty Mike.
0: Yeah. And when I was thinking of this game and trying to Google for it again, a lot of these were done by putting Performa in quotation marks on Google search <laughs> and then trying to to get back to whatever I was looking for. Um, I was like, is it Magic Mike? No, that's the movie about the strippers, um, <laughs> But I was on the right track because this was also known as Mighty Mike. So there was a re-release in 2001 that was shareware uh, as the bundling deal with Apple was waning. This was actually a PowerPC game. And so it runs under both Classic and OS X uh, under Rosetta or on a PowerPC Mac. Obviously not today on an Intel Mac. But up to the next to last era, Pangaea was publishing this game.
1: Some other games that Pangea released in and that were bundled with Max were Nanosaur in 1998. You bought like one of the first IMAX, I think this was bundled with it, or somewhere around that time, where you are a it's like a 3D uh, third-person shooter esque game. It reminded me a lot of like Tomb Raider, both in terms of like the low polygon count of the graphics and the the general gameplay. Um, You're a dinosaur and I think you're a dinosaur who has a gun and you're trying to get artifacts and shoot other dinosaurs. And then the next year they released Bugdom where you're like a a little roly poly bug and you can run around in the in the free world or you can roll up into a bug to like help you get through an area thick with enemies (laughs) I didn't play either of these a lot.
0: Really quirky games. I mean, Pangea Pangea is out there. And it is fascinating that Apple decided that this was a company that they really wanted to partner with. Some some bold stuff there from Apple in there. In in the in the time when they were not known for making uh more interesting decisions.
1: Ed mentioned the the binder of CDs that came with the performas, because it wasn't so much like uh, maybe buying a new Windows machine where you just open it up and turn it on and you've got McAfee antivirus and some... Preloaded crapware. <laughs> exactly. These were all CDs that you got to either run off the disk or install from the disk at your choosing. And my family's Performa was a 6115, and I forget what year those came out, but uh, our binder didn't have any of these Pangea games uh, nor the, uh, the Widget Workshop game. The only thing closest to a game it has was something called Around the World in 80 Days, which was basically like a story on rails, not a shooter on rails, but uh, a story where you had the like the, the thin veil of having an, a say in how the story went, but it always just went to retell the actual story of Around the World in 80 Days. And whenever the character would run into trouble, you could like give him some choices to do. But if you gave him a bad choice, he would just stall until you gave him the right choice, and he could move on to like the next page of the book, essentially.
0: There were a whole bunch of other titles, and again, I said that these changed all the time. Basically, every different Performa model, and boy, were there a lot of them. <laughs> Part of the problem with the Performa line, to be honest. Pretty much every Performa model had a different set of bundled software. And the only way that I could really find many of these is by searching eBay and people would, people are actually selling those binders full of CDs. And if they've posted photos of all of the, the CDs, you can get an idea for the titles that were in there. There were some purely educational things like, like we mentioned the encyclopedia, there were some like art history or time magazine archives, CDs, and then there were the ones for kids. And as it went on, some of them got particularly weird. Um, I don't even know what some of these things are, judging just from the cover of the CD, the label of the CD. Something called Wacky Jacks. <laughs> Barbie and the Magical House. Again, there's, a, there's Mattel with their, their digital properties. Microsoft Dinosaurs, which might be the worst kind of dinosaurs, <laughs> probably coming from that mid-90s partnership with Microsoft to distribute Mac software something called Eagle Eye Mysteries in London, which sounds about as enthralling as Around the World in 80 Days, and the weirdest of them all, Five-A-Day Adventures, brought to you by Dole. It has bananas on the cover. Oh my god. Reaching
1: far and wide for some of this bundled software.
0: So I think with that, we will leave our childhood memories behind and bring this episode to a close. If you have some favorite childhood titles for the Mac that we neglected to mention because we know that there are some others out there. These are just the ones that, like we said, struck us because they matched up with the ages we were at the time that the software was being developed and released. But if you have some other favorites, please let us know, especially if you have uh, some screenshots or YouTube clips or even a link to someplace like Macintosh Garden, where you can download and emulate it, or one of those web emulators like on uh, the Internet Archive. We'd love to check them out and mention them in the next episode. And for the titles that we have mentioned, we'll try to put links of the same sort in our show notes. You can find those
1: show notes at our website, simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also use our contact form at our website to send us any of these links or if you'd like to get in touch with us on Twitter, we are at simple
0: underscore beep. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at ecormany e c o r m a n y,
1: and I'm at bisuto b s u t o.
0: Thanks for listening, and there's only one thing left to do. Do it, rockapella. Yeah. yeah.